right, everyone, welcome to Crackle Comics Weekly. This is episode 61. Uh, we're going to talk about some new comics, and we're going to talk about an old comic today. Uh, interesting kind of split show. Um, sometimes we do retro, a bunch of retro books. Sometimes we review a single big book. We, you know, we did that with Pulp. And usually we just review new issues, so we're mixing it all together. And my name is Vincent, and I'm joined by... Dan. Mike. <laughs> Those are their names, and we're going to get right into things. Or actually, I think what we usually do is, um, do you guys have comments on the week? Currently can't hear out of my left ear, so that's fun. Did you walk next to an alarm or something? No, it's some like blockage thing, I think. I don't know what it is. It that's should happened. pop and go back to normal by tomorrow. That's happened to me before. And the only thing I have to report is that I I was up at 3 a.m. two days this week for work. So what do you want? Yeah. Metal? I do. Yeah, I think well, you woke up at 3 a.m. You didn't stay up to till 3 a.m. to work, right? No. Because <laughs> like, I remember watching one of your like you Dan has his own channel. Go check out Mandak. I think it's called. One of his haul videos, he was talking about how he had to get up at three for work one day, and I think I was watching at like two. Which was kind of, which I thought was kind of funny, but uh, yeah, just, just, well, I mean, just think, Dan, when when you're getting up for work, me and Vince are still up usually. That's what I'm saying. I I, I think that day I remember seeing a post from you on like one of you guys on Discord, and I was I just got to work and I got up. I'm like, it's three a.m. in the morning. What are they doing? Sending stuff in the Discord. So yeah, fun times. Being depressed and up late. Something like that. All right, so we're going to go right into things. And I'm going to talk first about, I think, a couple of books in a row. I think all the, I think I'm recapping all the books except for our retro. Because I didn't read the thing we're going to talk about towards the end. I was not able to get to it, et cetera. So we're going to jump right into some books. And uh, Mike will have some thoughts on that, on a couple of them as well. So, but I will first tell you about them. So in Green Lantern number one, this is the new first issue of the new series, Following Future State, written by Jeffrey Thorne with art by Dexter Soy. So in the present, Oa is being attacked and the lanterns led by Jon Stewart are fighting, whatever the threat is. And a Thanagarian shows up and she's acting like really aggressively towards Jon, but she's like a redhead and a chick. So given his relationship at times with Hawkgirl, I was kind of confused. But then flashback a couple hours, this is going down, and we see everything that led to this. So the Thanagarian is a Mayra, possibly pronounced wrong, but it's a you know made-up Thanagarian name appearing for the first time. So who knows? She is a rep for, I guess, Thanagar and the United Planets, which is usually a Legion thing far in the future. But from context clues in this issue, my understanding is that Bendis has set it up either through his Superman titles and or Legion of Superheroes. So now the United Planets, you know, starts right now in, you know, the present or shortly before now. I don't know, whatever. And the Conclave is either like a function of the United Planets or like a separate thing, whatever. It's like they're having a big political meeting on Oa with all the other alien races that are part of the United Planets. And basically they're deciding whether to admit Oa as a member of the United Planets. And we basically saw a similar, you know, thing as far as a planet being admitted and voted on to the United Planets in Mark Russell's Superman versus Imperius Flex book as part of Future State. So given that I haven't read Bendis' Superman, to me, this feels almost more connected to that uh, Future State book. But as part of this, all the lanterns, almost all of them have been recalled, you know, to protect and hang out at Oa. Which, of course, you know, anytime that's a thing, like all the political leaders, all the cops come in one area, you know, you're, you're always expecting something to go down because that's reference here. And then basically everyone is voting on whether OA should be accepted and kind of whether like a lot of judgment on whether the like how the lanterns and the guardians, you know, are supposed to interact with the rest of, you know, the United Planets and whether they should be cops and whether they have jurisdiction over there and over here. And out in the streets where Simon Baz is, you know, kind of escorting and making sure Team Lantern doesn't get into any trouble, they run into some like magic people who awaken something deep inside Oa. 
I didn't 100% understand what they're trying to describe here because it's somehow related to the star heart, which is usually part of Alan Scott's lore. But of course, you know, over time that's been looped into the Green Lantern Corps. So basically like these tentacles grow out of the middle of Oa and are destroying everything. And the lanterns are trying to fight it. But John quickly figures out, thanks to some dude who shows up, and this dude's like not fully introduced well, but I guess he's a new character that might stick around. But essentially the idea is to defeat this, we don't have to, we don't fight it with force. We kind of just sit here and meditate and like turn off our rings and take off our clothes. And so then everything chills down, the magic people are upset and they lost. And then Oa is accepted into the United Planets. And that's where we end. So, oh, and also, what's his name? Uh, Mike will be able to correct me when I bring him in in a second. But, like, the main Guardian dude uh, dies. I forget his name. That's where we end. So that's the big tease. You know, they're part of the United Planets. There's going to be a little bit of a status quo shift as far as, like, how the Lanterns are interacting with the rest of the alien races. I thought this was nice. You know, you saw a lot of characters, or at least referenced. You know, we saw a character from Kalu, which is where the Brainiacs family is from. You know, obviously we saw, I mentioned the Anagarians. We see Sinestro. He has a kind of cool little speech from his perspective. We saw Red Lanterns. We, we see Daxum mentioned and the Dominators and new races and everything. The actual crowd shots are slightly underwhelming. Well, they might be. I don't have like an encyclopedic knowledge of like Cosmic DC. So it could be that every single thing on this page is a race that's already existed. But for me, it's like you see like, two things that totally exist that I'm certain about, you know, like Red Lanterns or, or like Daxum. And then everything else looks like pretty generic. So I don't know if they just told the artists, like, just make up some shit. But I'm sure there's some Reddit post breaking down everything in the background of those pages. It seems that this first issue in this series going into it kind of hand wave over some recent continuity. And like I was saying, you could get into the nuts and bolts of some of the United Planets reps here, you know, like should the Dominators really be part of this? Should the Daxums, et cetera? But overall, I enjoyed this. I thought the art was fun, and I like John's characterization and everything. I thought everything was, was fun. Outs like, number one, I think this is a lot better than the issue of Future State we read, because that was pretty bad. So we gave him the benefit of the doubt that, okay, when, he, when, he, when Jeffrey Thorne can actually do Green Lantern stuff in two months, it'll probably be better, and it was. Number two, I think Dexter Soy's art is also much better than the stuff we saw in Future State. Number three, that wasn't Ganthet because they never call him Ganthet. And even on the promo images for Here Lies a Dead Guardian, doesn't say Ganthet on it. So I'm not. I'm going to go ahead and say that that was not Ganthet who died because if so, they definitely would have said it was Ganthet. What? What am I on? Number four. I think this is a terrible cover for the first issue of the book because yeah, Teen Center with the guardian while John is like very small off in the corner. So I was like already like, Oh wait, I thought this was going to be John's book and teen lanterns front and center. So no, it's very much John's book, which uh, I was happy to see because Jeffrey Thorne was like definitely talking up how he was excited to have John in the forefront and his promotion of this overall. It's a good start. Uh, I like it. And I, I liked the the touch of like the ceremonial garb was modeled after Kryptonian. I thought that was pretty cool and a nice touch. But overall, like a good first start for the handle of John here. And it was kind of fun to see Kilowog and Guy show up too. I'm interested to see how Thorn works in some of the other lanterns because we had cameos here and even like a hologram how Jordan showed up for a good bit. And it wasn't like completely bearing of how Jordan and you know Jeffrey Thorne's been very vocal about how he does not like Hal Jordan, but he he handled them pretty good here. So overall, uh, I'm excited to see what comes. This was another good first issue debut for a run in Infinite Frontier. Hopefully, it continues. Yeah, I mean, not much else to add. I mean, you guys kind of hit on it, but I felt like this issue was like was just very grand in like scope. I felt like there's a lot of stuff going on and. The art, the layouts of the pages were just amazing. I I don't know what it was in this art. I guess like I'm not sure if I'm just overestimating it or whatever. But I thought a lot it was of really, wide shots. Yeah, a lot of wide shots. Very felt very like I guess maybe that that's what kind of helped with it. But felt very cinematic in some ways. I guess, and you know obviously that's what a lot of people go for these days. But 
uh, some great splash pages in there. But yeah, I mean, this is a really cool intro. I, I like all the characters in here, you know, kind of introduces them all. And yeah, I'll definitely keep reading. I'm excited to see where Thorne takes this. I I do want to know, though, like, if this also, like, it's the perfect time to kind of streamline DC's alien races because it's always kind of been a jumbled mess compared to Marvel. So maybe Jeffrey Thorne does that with the whole United Planets thing taking off here. That'd be interesting to see. Like, could we possibly get some Tamaranian Green Lantern shows up or, like, there's stumbling on there. So it'd, it'd be cool to see how he works on the rest of the alien races and maybe streamline this a little bit, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm excited. All right, moving into Swamp Thing number two by Ram V, Mike Perkins, colored by Mike Spicer. So Levi, who's like our new Swamp Thing, he keeps having nightmares where he turns into Swamp Thing all the way across the country. He lives in Brooklyn, but Swamp Thing shows up in Arizona. And he's like taunted and falls around this like vampire type of killer dude who's killing like campers and like people running from the law and people trying to you know, sneak across, immigrate to the U.S. And a sheriff in town is also after the killer. And one night after a pep talk from his partner, Levi as Swampy kind of takes more initiative within his nightmare Swamp Thing trance and takes out the killer. And suddenly there's a humongous tree, like an Indian tree, in the middle of the desert near the border, like humongous. So it's a big media attraction. And Batman is look is checking it out from the Batcave, and others are checking it out. There's someone in shadow. I don't know who this is. You know, it could be Floronic Man or whatever the hell. This is pretty good. Some of the coloring seemed a little too vibrant in my view. There's a bar scene with the sheriff where you know they're kind of going for like the dingy like late night bar with some like a, with like maybe like a neon sign really glowing inside. But basically the whole the whole scene is like purple. It's just like very prominent, and I think they went just a little bit too far um, with that, but that's a very minor quibble. This is definitely, I, I, I agree though, there is some, in terms of art, yeah, there are some times where it's a little overdone, but like, it definitely sets the mood. Um, this is, I don't know, I don't read a lot of Swamp Thing, so like, I don't really know what type of art style I'm really to expect from these, from these stories, but I really like this one. I love the the text bubbles, you know, just like the really creepy, like dripping kind of like black um, bubbles with the white text in them. I think that's really cool. No, this is just very like action packed and definitely will be reading the next issue. That like that last like splash at the end with the trees is very creepy looking. So no, this is really cool. Outside of the possible continuity break of Batman viewing this from the Batcave, because shouldn't he be in his little bottom, little basement of his brownstone that he's living in right now, unless that's also being called the Batcave? So it's very good. Uh, we've had four issues of Mike Perkins' drawing Swamp Thing now, and to me, they've all been very good to great. Is this a little bit worse than issue one? Yeah, a little bit, but overall, I still think the the fights are good, and that ominous last shot of that very horrifying looking tree in the middle of the desert looks pretty good. So I'm excited to see what comes only eight more issues to go. Hopefully, you know, this catches on and spins into that hopeful ongoing if it sells high enough, because I think Ram V and Mike Perkins have something going here. Yeah. I think, I mean, obviously it's a shift, uh, you know, Dan was asking about art, like, you know, there's nothing specifically that you'd look for in a Swamp Thing book on that level. Um, besides, you know, plants and stuff but obviously this is a different take they have this levi character swamp thing though not every single swamp thing run has been you know like al collins slash not al collins you had the bkv run which very much focused on his daughter tifa but um i'm kind of waiting to see as this goes along because i kind of i was i was saying this as we were reading future state which that was like a little bit i think that was like that was supposed to be al collins but as we knew that this was coming I basically have, I'm kind of waiting for this to be done. I mean, it, it could still be a good comic. It's considered a great Swamp Thing comic. But me as a as a Swamp Thing fan, I, I would prefer if it was just like, you know, Al Collins slash fake Al Collins, you know, depending on the continuity. But um, I'm sure, you know, they may loop it back around and connect to other things and vice versa. 
Uh, so we'll see as the story continues, but everything was executed really well. And now our third issue, our third new issue that, we're, that we chose to cover this week, Marauders number 19 from Jerry Doug and Stefano Caselli. So Verendi, the like teenage dorks uh, are terrorizing Lowtown and Madripoor. And the mutants can't touch soil directly because of international relation treaties, all the, you know, all the junk status quo with uh, Krakoa. So they sneak a gate into the sewers. Kate Pride swims across. And, and the one thing that I don't like about this is that, and again, unless I was like totally blind. So in order for Kate to sneak into the sewers and do her thing, which I'm about to explain, Iceman and Pyro, they call, they're calling themselves the two. They're going, they're creating this huge distraction. And it's like this giant ice column that's spewing fire and stuff. And it's described off panel. But we don't see it at all, which is like maybe it's a joke that we don't see it. But I thought that was super clunky. And it's like this is comic books. If you want to talk about this giant, distracting, ridiculous looking ice sculpture with fire, like maybe the joke is that it's like a giant penis because there's like a little bit of comedy like hinted at there. And maybe that's the joke. And that's also the joke why they're not showing us, uh, you know, it on a panel. But I thought that was either. Either the joke wasn't like fully sold or I thought it was stupid that we didn't see it. But Kate Pride sneaks into the sewers and plants a gate. And then they recruit the Morlocks, who I guess never actually went to Krakoa for the most part. They're kind of off in, in their area. So they're like kind of not breaking the rules. So they start fighting for the Magipore folks. And Lowtown is now called Mutitown. And the Morlocks basically have the Princess Bar as their headquarters. We get to see Nero. That's the main thing. The other characters I don't care about. I, I kind of like the Doctor character we saw two issues ago. But I guess the big plan was like they shot the thing off and Kate was like phasing through it to get to the grate. That was the, the part of showing it. So I, that was the takeaway I did. Overall, like it wasn't an exceptionally grand issue. It was kind of just a bridge to get to our next spot. And like, oh, like it was another good issue of Marauders. I don't have a lot to write on about it. Like, Stefano Caselli still looked good. Like, I, I still enjoy this book. Uh, I thought that we would have gotten more set up for the the Hellfire Gala here, but I guess that's not really until the the deep summer until like what, like June. So overall, like this wraps up the little story they were doing in Madripoor. So I just out of curiosity, scrolling through the wiki. So some of these Morlock characters here, basically the two guys who look very similar, like they're the big like British characters. This is their first appearance since New Mutants number 100 in 1991 from uh, Whitefield in these years. Pretty cool. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I'm kind of in a weird period right now with the X-Men books where granted, I'm, you know, as we have discussed probably on the last episode, we're not, you know, we're not reading all of them we're not even reading the majority at this point but i don't fully get like like i don't have a great feel for the direction of the titles right now you know the the initial like you know 12 issues or so most of the titles we kind of knew you know they were still you know fully establishing the Krakoa status quo and each book had a certain mission involved but like things kind of slowed down and then way and then ten of swords happened and then it's just kind of went right back into being slowed down um, with a couple exceptions, like, you know, the latest X-Men issue picked up on specific threads, but like, I don't really know where Marauder is pointing, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm not sure. No, it seems that the only one that has a real type of beginning, middle, end, or at least that's not the right words for it, at least, you know, defined narrative of where they're going is X-Force right now with Ben Percy. And that, like I said, like you said, that's not bad. Like, I'm fine with, you know, one book has a long story arc, ones have smaller broken up ones. That's fine. I just want to know what the overall plan is going forward because it has felt like things have stagnated a bit. I kind of feel like you're looking for your first time, your first chance to dip out on most of these. I could be wrong there, but I, that's what it kind of feels like you're inching towards here. I mean, not necessarily. I just feel like, I don't know, they're not, some of these are not totally grabbing me in the same way that they did for the first, you know, eight to 12 issues. And, you know, knowing that there's, you know, the thing we bring up constantly, knowing that there's more books and more books, it's like, you know, which ones do I really care about? 
like we're probably going to try a couple of the number ones that are coming up. There's like basically like a new thing every month until the fall. They just, you know, kind of put out a, an image showing the slate recently. Um, there's a new number one in two weeks, I believe. Yeah, two weeks. Way of X number one from Cy Spurrier and Bob Q, which I think is the book with uh, Nightcrawler. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> and then there, you know, behind the scenes and long term, there's also in, internally I'm having, you know, anxiety and, and internal debate on uh, how I may want to add certain pieces of, of this era of X-Men to my shelf. Because, you know, if I if I got every single thing, then, you know, that's a whole mess. And I've already basically stopped myself from doing that for X-Men in general. But I, I recently bought, I haven't received them yet, but I did buy actually the House of X hardcover and Ten of Swords. So I, I probably intend to get the first like hardcovers for some of the key series, basically the ones they're probably putting out. I don't expect them to do a, uh, I don't even remember what the title was called, the one that Brian Edward Hill did. I don't even expect them to do a hardcover of that, which only went six issues anyways. Children, not Children of the Atom, uh, Fallen Angels. Yeah, Fallen Angels. So I don't know. We will at least keep up some form of X-Men coverage as we move forward. But now we're flashing the past to 2006. And then we'll flash to the past a different point. I think before 2006. I think like early 2000s or late 90s. 1999. Okay. All right. So Mike's going to talk about this. And then Dan and I will have thoughts. And then they'll have thoughts. Yeah, well, this is our first kind of retro book because the we'll, we'll talk about the trade paperback from 1999, but more recently just republished. But uh, Birds of Prey number 99 from December of 2006. This is Gail Simone, James Diaz, and then Robin Riggs on inks. This is relatively close to when Gail Simone's run on Birds of Prey would end. She was on the book from issues 56 to 108, so only nine, like only what eight, nine more issues to go here. Uh, before Tony Bedard would come in. And then she would launch a new number one, which would last for 15 issues before the new 52 in Brightest Day. And I know there was a Birds of Prey book in the new 52, but I can't remember if she wrote that. But the opening of this book here sees Black Canary and Huntress tracking down a gunrunner who has threatened the children that Huntress is looking after, which makes it like a big personal stakes business for her. So leading to the point where they follow this woman up the building rooftop where the big moment in question is, is Helen is going to drop her off or not? And then she, of course, like she doesn't, she's talked down by Dinah and it's made to play. It's, you know, it's played for that reason of like, well, because Black Canary's here, she's mellowing out under, under her and Barbara. And then, you know, that's the end of that mission. So while that's happening, Barbara's, uh, who's by the way, Oracle full-time back then, she, she didn't have her spine fixed yet. That would happen a few years later, but was fighting with a teenage girl who had snuck, into her her clock tower trying to claim the mantle of Batgirl for herself. I think, is this, uh, I'll have to ask Vince, he could tell me when we break, but I think this might be the time when they did the stupid heel turn with Cassandra Kane. But we definitely do see that this is at the time when Stephanie Brown was dead. But this like high school teenager who's like some reckless you kind of child rebel, she's like a prominent uh, child of an actress and she's like lashing out and using her skills as like a gymnastics and uh, sports uh, kid to gain attention for herself as a superhero so she's trying to claim the title of Batgirl and then seeing that the you know Barbara basically beats her and then she shows her the recent history of the Batgirl mantra shows her the cautionary you know ramifications of she you know chooses this life for herself so she shows her the bullet that paralyzed her and then the like the dead photos of Stephanie Brown's body which uh the, yeah no this is post-war games so she's dead but not really dead because it was a fake out by leslie Tompkins, and that's a whole other topic for another time it's don't read war games it's stupid the talk kind of sets her straight though where she says that she isn't going to be batgirl but eventually she'll be a superhero anyway so the ending but uh you know the big ending of this is uh barbara and dinah sharing a heart to heart with the unfortunate news that black canary is going to leave the team so this is basically her saying goodbyes and also showing her the memoir, which she's finished and is going to, you know, planning on releasing. And the last pages here is Helena alone wondering how the team's going to continue without uh, Black Canary on it. Overall, it's a good issue. Like, I haven't read much of Birds of Prey. I definitely want to later on. I think the art here, it, it skirts lines at times. Like, it, you know, I'm thinking back to our discussions with uh, Batman Catwoman. 
in terms of how much cheesecake is too much cheesecake. And one of the opening splash pages definitely does that. Uh, but overall, like the Gail Simone writing here and characterization is really, really good. And it's, you know, 2060 DC. It's an era for these characters that I miss. And I think it just keeps hammering, hammering home that, you know, 2011 is, you know, five years away. And then the DC universe I know kind of goes away. And I think the more we we read in that 2000s, the, you know, the pre-New 52 DC, the more I go, wow, I really just don't like anything that came after the New 52. But, you know, hopefully with, you know, Rebirth and now Infinite Frontier, maybe inching towards something that I can make peace with. But, you know, that was a rough period, uh, I think, looking back on it from 2011 to what, what was it, 2015. Because a lot of this stuff is really, really good. And I really, like, liked it, even though only reading bits and pieces. But overall, uh, this was a good issue, I thought. So I'll break for you guys. What's what's the thoughts here on Birds of Prey 99? Dan, did you know who these characters were? Yes, I did. <laughs> no, I thought this was pretty action-packed. Uh, like you said, I mean, there is definitely some little bit of cheesecake going on before the... Uh, uh, actually, a lot, actually. Um, but uh, no, I thought it was pretty interesting. The art at some points felt a little off to me, but I don't know. I, I thought it was interesting. You said this is part of the New 52, right? No, no. it's not no. what I said. It's pre-New oh, 52, it's 06. Oh, my bad. Okay, so it's, right, it's before it. Okay, my bad. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought this was somewhat interesting, but yeah, the art here, just there's some really weird faces going on. But yeah, I don't know. Birds of Prey semi-decent movie and this is a semi-decent issue i mean i i would say well number one vince can't comment on the movie because he hasn't watched it but i would put that as like the second best of the dc movies but that movie not really in line with the book more in name than than the book definitely well the the art comments are interesting and it's definitely in the book but it's just interesting because like it's cheesecakey but like I wouldn't necessarily describe, uh, I think this is Hayes' size, or however you say his name. Or no, it's James Diaz. I don't know who that is. Um, I thought it was Hayes' size. Totally different. But uh, I'm not that familiar with this artist, so I won't say anything specifically about them. But obviously, like, the genesis of Gale's run on Birds of Prey was with Ed Benes, who is definitely a cheesecakey artist. So I feel like we're still in the era where, you know, that was just kind of like what a lot of comics looked like, especially comics starring female characters. And also like basically the start of this run was that. So they were probably kind of, you know, loosely still trying to keep up the aesthetic as it went on, even when artists changed. The, the Yeah, the the Cassandra Kane, you know, face turn here, it, it's a couple months or maybe like a full year before this. Let's see, this is December. No, it was like around six months before this. Because we're in 2006, so this is after Infinite Crisis. So most of the titles are in their one-year-later arc. Um, this might still be the first one-year-later arc for Birds of Prey. I'm not sure. This is like a couple issues into an arc, technically. And the, the girl who's like trying to impersonate Batgirl, she eventually... I mean, she's never like formally like an official, official member. But she essentially joins, loosely joins the Birds of Prey as a character called Misfit. Who's, who? I mean, she basically still like stays as like a bootleg Batgirl, but she does kind of get her own costume um, and she can like teleport and stuff and whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think this is good. And, uh, you know, Gail Simone, probably her longest, you know, run in, in big two comics. I think, I don't think there's anything that would really rival it. Secret six might be almost as long, but you know, those I think is like 36 issues. Um, that if you count the, the new 52 stuff and i guess you've got to count the five issues of villains united but 56 to 108 is a pretty long run and then the, the second run after it yeah so yeah i mean this i i i think it would be hard pressed to find someone to say that either birds of prey and or secret six are not you know gail's definitive works and uh this was an interesting kind of point to pop in on it i would definitely say it's not the highest point but it's not it's not really a low point either at all and they DC has recently been putting out reprints of it and they're kind of wonky because they came out like right at the same time as the movie. So like maybe a bunch of stores bought a ton anticipating the movie to be a hit, 
but like you know quality side i haven't seen it as mike said but like i don't know like the movie wasn't like a huge hit as far as i know so i don't know that people were like rushing to buy the books in the same way that like invincible is flying off the shelves right now and other examples of that or like watchmen when the show was popping off but at the same time there's also the distributor switch up that dc did so like the first birds of prey book that they put out the like the recent reprint it's like oddly super hard to find online but i don't think it's like but i i have a theory it's one of those like fake out of print books where you just can't find it online but like it's not actually valuable so if you find it in a store uh, good to grab you know great run and the book might be fake you know fake rare a lot of those more recent ones if depending on how much you hate covers the dc likes to do this thing where they have a movie come out and they will put the cover as the movie poster of the book. And it's the most annoying thing. They did that with Green Lantern Secret Origin. So if you get one of the more recent trades with that, you're stuck with stupid Ryan Reynolds movie cover on it. I, I will say, so they, they put out a bunch of like Birds of Prey related books for the movie. And a lot of them were weird. It was like, I think they did a reprint, a long overdue reprint of the... Hunter's Batman, Crime. Yeah, the... Or, whatever the batman huntress book and i think that may have had a dumb movie cover and then there's like a, a black canary thing which had a dumb movie cover but actually the birds of prey the, the gail simone birds of prey reprints none of those are movie covers but yeah I, I definitely whether it's comics or novels i hate i hate the photo covers um the, the if it's a big enough book what you can what a publisher can try and do is do like half of a run with you know art-based covers and half with photo covers like that's what dynamite did with the boys when the tv show came out so you have six boys books but there's two variations of each i don't know if dc cares to do that but whatever so now we're going to talk about they're going to talk about another retro book uh at longer length and uh more details yeah it's things uh things got kind of busy this week and i basically was like all right what else do we want to talk about and uh, we decided on Scene of the Crime by Ed Rubaker, Michael Lark, and Sean Phillips. And I don't, by no means is it a secret that I think that all three of us are big fans of Ed Rubaker and his longtime collaborator, Sean Phillips. For me, um, I was first exposed to Ed's work in his, you know, his Captain America and Daredevil runs. And then you go down the rabbit hole of, oh, wait, he did DC work. Oh, and it includes Batman. Oh, I want to read that. And then you, you know, oh, you read Batman. And then you go, oh, wait, what's this Gotham Central thing? And then Gotham Central then leads you on the further rabbit hole down uh, for his crime, his crimes comic work, which is where Sean Phillips then comes in. But at this point I have read some of his works from criminal, the fade out killer be killed now pulp and, you know, reckless is sitting on my shelf and maybe we'll do a series on those too, because I think the second one's like due out maybe like in one or two weeks. But today though, we're going to talk about the scene of the crime, which is technically Brubaker's first crime comic. If you don't count his work on, a book called An Accidental Death, which he, I think he wrote, no, he wrote, he wrote that, I think it might have been a Caliber Press book. But his first work for Vertigo, which, you know, the now defunct subset of DC, and his first time working with Michael Lark and Sean Phillips, Michael Lark does the pencils for this entire series, and he inks the first issue, and then Brubaker and the back matter material of the trade paperback that just came out um, says that Lark was unhappy with his inks, and they brought in Sean Phillips to give them a different flavor. So Phillips inks issues two through four. This was originally meant to be titled House of Mystery to coincide with the old DC comic of the same name. Vertigo was doing a thing at the time where they had a version of House of Secrets that was a horror-themed thing, and he was like, oh, we could do House of Mystery when he was pitching it, but for whatever reason, the idea of that was nixed, and then the series became known as Scene of the Crime, and then colon, A Little Piece of Good Night. Uh, that was like the subtitle shortened to now just scene of the crime because it was originally intended as an ongoing, but then that got nixed and then multiple miniseries, hence the subtitle. But then this is all we got. Brubaker talked about how Michael Lark began drawing a Hawkman title, which put off the sequels. And then it was like, you know, two years later and then you know, the project dies. But he does end up working with Michael Lark again, of course, on uh, Gotham Central and then their Eisner winner was run on Daredevil. So it's not like they were never, they never worked again. They did two seminal works with each other afterwards. But 
So after all that, this is, yes, another crime noir novella written in 1998, released in 1999. This is the story follows private investigator Jack Harriman as he is hired by this woman named Alex Jordan on the recommendation of his father's former partner to try and find Alex's younger sister, Maggie, who's been missing for nearly a month. And Jack is a man in his, you know, mid to late 20s and also... He sports like a glass eye, but you don't find that out until it's a kind of a clever way they do it in the book. We'll talk about that later. I'm sure Dan and I will talk about how, you know, that reveal there is a very sly reveal. But he lives above his aunt and uncle's art gallery named Scene of the Crime. His uncle is a famous crime scene photographer whose work is actually recognized with merit in the art world. And so, like, people come in and buy, like, prints of, like, these crime scene photos of, like, dead people. It's kind of grisly, but. I think there it's modeled after like an actual famous uh, art photographer who did this. But the thing about Jack's eye though, is he lost his eye when his father was murdered with a car bomb and he was hit with some flying shrapnel, leaving like a scar over his eye. So Jack's search leads into like this hippie commune where they're still practicing some of the sentiments of the summer of love, where this is set in uh, San Francisco, like, like at the time, like 1999 San Francisco where he meets like the lead or the lead of this place named Joseph Lunar. And he shows him a picture of Maggie to where he has this look of surprisement, but he says she was never there, which is like a clear lie. Like the way it's drawn, it's a clear lie. But Jack instead confirms that she was in fact there uh, by talking to the secretary and had relations with, you know, the guy who ran the commune. So then, you know, some rooting around in the trash, he's able to find Maggie's last number of contact, taking him to a hotel up the road. And eventually he does make contact with Maggie after a stakeout and save her from a mugger. And then she wakes up and then, you know, he takes her to a diner basically to sober her up, but where she basically shares the story. And to Jack, it seems, hey, all right, looks like she's fine. Uh, You know, there might be like there's some money involved, might be a blackmail thing. He does notice that she has like a loaded gun in her purse, but he's like, all right, this all looks fine. I'll call her sister and she'll pick her up, you know, case closed. Not quite. He finds out the next morning that she's been murdered. And also she has $10,000 in her closet, making this kind of, you know, a much bigger case than it seemed. So if that sounds interesting to you, you know, stop listening to the podcast now. And then I'm sure you can come back for thoughts. I'll edit that in the audio, you know, timestamp it. But, you know, this is your spoiler warning because it gets worse. (laughs) But this leads down the rabbit hole where we discovered that Alex had in fact lied. And so did his father's partner, Raymond. You can, like I said, you can stop now if you don't want to get spoiled. So, okay, here we go. Heartbroken in seeing, you know, the death of Maggie and seeing the money has been left untouched. Cause he feels bad about this. Jack knows that this wasn't money related and it's something bigger. And he discovers in his uncle's photos that Lunar had, you know, another compound years ago that burned down in a fire and that Maggie and Alex were both members um, there as children. Their parents were part of their, you know, this first commune. And their uncle's photo sees a young Maggie next to the, you know, charred body of what they believe to be their father, Jeff. Nope. Turns out Jeff was actually a Lunar, like the, his, their mom covered it up and switched the names and the guy got away uh, but he didn't die in this fire and instead you know maggie's mother lied and covered it up and this is where it gets kind of dark so warning so this commune where they were living they kept the children separated from the parents and while the parents were engaging in free love one of the adults was in charge of watching the children and then this leads down the whole of you know sexually exploiting the kids and it was you know alex who killed Maggie in anger as this original plan was to explode Lerner for money. And then when Maggie found out that she was sleeping with her dad again, it gets all more crammed up. And then, you know, the gun gets misplaced and, you know, all hell breaks loose. And now a complete, an already broken family becomes even more broken. And, you know, I'm leaving out some more bits. Like there's a couple of good stakeout scenes and some other characters that pop in here. Uh, mainly, you know, the, the, near the ending here, the discovery of Lunar's body, which connects all the dots. But for Brubaker's first crime work, I, I think this is excellent. And it's reflected in his Eisner nomination from this from 2000. I would say that Brubaker agrees in his reflection of the work that his narration boxes are too long. It is a very wordy book, unlike, uh, you know, more, the more streamlined and narrowed down work. Um, I would say not, you know, narrowed down, but much more focused 
uh, that we get in things like Criminal, uh, for example. But this, or or uh, I guess the most comparable thing to this would be maybe the fade out because you're still let, leading down the mystery of a missing girl who's getting murdered. Um, but yeah, like this is like really good for a debut, your first work for DC Vertigo. But you know, you know, like I said, first real crime work, and it shows in that aspects here. He's crafted a very good mystery that weaves in and out. And I like the interesting character of Jack, though I think he isn't wildly different from your typical archetype of your cynical private eye. He, though the biggest difference is that he's younger, like he's you know mid to late twenties, and he's a recovering addict. But like he doesn't dress like your, you know, your standard PI. Like he's not walking around in a in a trench coat and fedora. He's like kind of like dressed up in jeans. He's got like messy hair that like it's clearly unwashed that he can just like swipe it up to a side. And then he like is you know is just wearing like a t-shirt and then covers it up with like a sweater. And it's like very contemporary way of going about things. Like it's like little details there that I think make this character different from some of the others that I've uh, you know seen him write for a time. But overall, it like so there's some archetypes that are similar or not. But and then I'll go into the artwork here before I break to where Dan and I can talk about this. But Michael Arch's artwork looks a lot more detailed here than it is um, as you know. I, I don't want to use the word simplistic as something like Daredevil Gotham Central, but uh, I think Sean Phillips's inking it brings out more of a, a deeper detail to it than you would with the other inkers and colorists that he worked with Daredevil and Gotham Central. Um, and James Sinclair's coloring here, there's he's kind of going for like a muted and washed warm palette. There's lots of like cool blues and cool oranges and maybe some purples here thrown in the hue patterns for the backing and lighting, and it really it makes it look worse. I'm not I'm saying make it looks makes it work, not <laughs> makes it look worse. It looks very good. Mainly, though, you get more detailed eyes here from Michael Lurk than what you would normally see from the times of Red, Gotham Central, or Daredevil. Both, like, the art here looks great. It's just a different, you know, taste. Um, the eyes kind of reminds me a little bit back when, you know, before his art kind of totally fell off. He was always being known as the eyes guy. No one draws better eyes than John Cassidy, and you can clearly see that here with the very kind of expressive and detailed eyes here as well. Though I think this book is massively different from what you'd see Michael Lark on Daredevil and Gotham Central, but like I said, both good. And Daredevil and Gotham Central have like this heavy setting at night in a March darker lines and color pattern than Scene of the Crime where, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's at day and inside rooms with lighting that's going to be different from like night rooftops of Gotham City or Hell's Kitchen. But overall, like four issues in 1999, this was like really, really good. So what did you guys think? And when I say guys, I guess I just mean Dan. Yeah, I mean, you had a lot of stuff there. You know, obviously, like I, like you said, both of us are big Ed Brubaker fans. So, but no, I mean, Ed Brubaker, seeing like very early Ed Brubaker writing on crime stuff, very entertaining. This was definitely a treat to, to read this week. Yeah, the, the dialogue stuff, I thought was a little bit of a slog to get through, but Honestly, once the books got moving a little bit, it didn't feel as annoying. So I would definitely say, like, you know, like you said, like the premise of this of this story, the plot twist, you know, towards the end of it. I would say this is probably the most twisted of anything I've read through Ed Brubaker. And, you know, because like everything else, like criminal, fade out. I mean, some of that stuff is a little screwed up, but at the same time, it's like, okay, it's not too bad, but this is like, this is pretty some nasty stuff and like yeah. i'm surprised yeah. i'm not i'm not surprised but i guess i'm cautiously i guess surprised that like this got accolades because something talking about this stuff you would think that that might shy some people away from reading it but it's handled correctly and properly and appropriately and i think that's what's important so yeah and early michael lark too i think like you said it's definitely a much different style Definitely, I don't know, in some ways it feels a lot rougher, I guess. But yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're comparing it to now, it's just, it's way different and not for better or for worse, I guess. But no, this was a great pick, great four issue miniseries type book. Anyone out there who's interested in crime, crime stories, comics, uh, definitely check this out. I'm pretty sure it's still in print. You can go purchase the trade paperback. It just, I have it 
great here of this line next week. It just came out in trade paperback after like a decade. I think Image put out a hardcover in 2012, and that was the first time because like I think Brubaker owns all the rights to his stuff now, so that's why I can publish publish it. Because like I said, this was his first work. This was published under DC Vertigo, which you hint on like the mature, you know, like very kind of you know dark themes here i'm surprised that you would find this even like a vertigo book with some of the material discussed but i and you know 1999 so you're not you're kind of i i can't remember like when svu for law and order would start up but i think it lines up similar so it's not completely taboo to have some of these elements in a comic book especially like looking at what you would see on television at that point they kind of you know mirror each other right but yeah. it, it's for a DC Vertigo book. It's definitely something that you wouldn't normally see. And also this isn't something, you know, in the vertical wheelhouse that you normally see published as a crime book. They didn't publish a lot of crime books at Vertigo. I all, I mean, overall, I wish that we would get more of this. There's, you know, there's a universe where we did get the three more miniseries that he had originally planned. I do like have to say, uh, Brian Michael Bendis writes a very nice uh, beginning in the trade paperback here where he discusses, uh, like, he said that this is his favorite of Ed's works. Uh, and he makes, like, jokes about, like, if you're a real Ed Brubaker fan, you, people people argue, and he wrote this back in 2012 when the hardcover came out, and he's like, people argue what, what over, what's your favorite uh, and what's the best Ed Brubaker work. I'm curious to see what he would say now with, you know, a decade more of more criminal work and things like the fade out and whatnot, but, and then Killer Be Killed, but he's like, no, this has always been my favorite Ed Brubaker crime work, and he also talks about their time at Caliber Press a little bit, which I thought it was interesting. The the back matter material here too is also uh, very interesting. It contains the story that uh, he wrote for I think it was yeah Vertigo Winner's Edge number two, which was a uh, kind of a ten page story called Gods and Sinners, which was published before the series came out. So the trade paperback has everything kind of in this world of scene of the crime which is very different from criminal because you're following a private investigator i would though i would be i'd be interested to see like because you know criminal has like the different characters that weave in and out with the family histories and stuff like it would be kind of cool if like the next criminal story he writes like jack harriman's just there and you you know you just go with it i know uh detective i forget who plays him but like detective munch from svu and x files that actor always just plays detective munch on whatever show he's on. So you could just do something like that. And it's like, yeah, he's my character. He's, you know, he's in the criminal world, but also he was in his own little place in, because nothing really separates scene of the crime. Like there's nothing saying it couldn't be in the DC vertigo world. I mean, I'm sorry, in the criminal world, even though it was published at DC vertigo. Yeah. I mean, that would, that would be a cool Easter egg. I mean, you know, I feel like, Harvey feels like some of like all of Edward Baker's like crime stuff is loosely connected, but like not really. I don't know. There's probably some like weird theory out there, but maybe not. Like a Tarantino-esque theory that all yeah. those movies are in the same universe. Yeah, because like they all they all have like kind of similar themes in some way or another, but like they're all very different. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just grasping at straws. I don't think so. I mean, criminals already heavily connected. Overall, anything else to say? I think it's worth a pick. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think it's a good addition. I don't think it it tops my list of Ed Brubaker stuff, just because of kind of you know the air it's from and some of the little things I have an issue with it uh, for. But uh, it's definitely interesting to read that for sure. It's to compare it. It's like going back in. Uh, I'll use the Turner Classic Movies comparison. It's like you throw it on like. It's a movie you're watching on TCM that stars an actor you know and a director you know, but it's like from earlier in their career, so you get to see, you know, it evolve. It's exactly like I could picture like your your Robert Osborne coming on here, going like, "Scene of the crime is like you know these people from this," and then he gives you your rundown before you know this would play if it were a movie. But no, it. I mean, you can clearly see like the evolution come here, but like like we said, the narration box is like. And he talks about this, and he's like, "I cringed when I when I looked at the old scripts because the narration boxes they're just so filled." And he 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 called out the kudos to the letter, but also Michael Lark already works in the matter for where he already places his his um his letter boxes in his art, so that's why it worked out so well. Because like, I, I guess to compare it to 
maybe Kevin Smith's uh, Guardian Devil on Daredevil, like those books were like hugely long scripting for someone who hadn't really written comics before. Because Ed, before working on this, he'd only really uh, written scripts for him because he used to write and draw himself. So this was okay. like the first real time he was writing for someone else to draw his writing. So we had to adapt to that. Yeah. But overall, it's it's really good. Like, it's not bad. Like, it's I think it would like it's really good. And I I'm struggling to see where I would put it. But like, I feel like it surprised me where it, like it strikes the uppers for me more than the lowers. Yeah, I would say so. I I I think it's good. I just it's just tough because everything that they write is good. <laughs> like, there's there's very few stinkers in yeah. that bunch. <laughs> I, I can't think of any true stinkers, but also I guess I, I said we talk about it briefly, but like the discovery, I, I would have to say that there's one moment where I don't like it because they use the same reveal twice. Mm-hmm. The reveal where we n- learn that Jack has a glass eye, it's very smart because you only see like the one half of his face. And I went back and looked at the book. You only see that one half ever on the screen until he's having dinner at the diner where Maggie points out that, oh, you have a glass eye. Um, you, you have you have a fake eye, and then we see the the camera's lighting shift, and we actually see the scar over his eye. The part where he's talking to the survivor of the fire, and they do the the, the two face thing, where the face is all scarred up. You did the same reveal twice, and it was like the one was for the shock value, while the one was kind of like more smarter and layered. I was like, we didn't need the same reveal, like half face eye reveal, twice in the same book. That would be like one of the big merits I have against it. Yeah, as I say, that's that's a party foul. <laughs> Overall, though, recommend it. Go grab it. I don't have anything else. We're not going to do picks the week for this week. We only talked about like three things. I think this would probably be your pick of the week anyway. But yeah, technically, you know, those aren't eligible. But we'll we'll be back next week with something else, probably. <laughs>